The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 12. If you're using the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 818. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are back in Luke and uh, we'll be in Luke for some time. The next four Sundays today being the first of four Sundays, if my memory serves me right, will be in Luke. And then after that fourth Sunday is when my, me and my family will be going on sabbatical. And so then what you need to know is for the next four weeks, you will be uh, having a little sermon series in the book of Psalms. And so the sermon series that we usually do at the beginning of the year, we slid that forward to the beginning of summer, and then also um, the other brothers, um, some uh, in, the, in the church here, and also others that will be traveling in uh, to serve us God's word. You guys will uh, work through the book of Philippians, and so that was what will be going on through uh, June and July. And then when we come back in August, we'll pick right back up in Luke, and we'll, we'll keep on trucking, okay? So this morning, we are continuing on in our sermon series in Luke, and our sermon title is going to be called this, Fear and Anxiety, and this is going to be a two-parter. So I think Jesus is talking to his disciples about the fears and the anxieties that his followers can have and do have and experience and face in day-to-day life, and so today is just going to be called Fear and Anxiety, part one. And our main idea for this morning out of these 12 verses looks, is going to look like this. For those who follow Jesus, Jesus is the comforter of our fearful, anxious hearts. Anyone have just had a little fear this past week over something out of their control? A little anxiety, lay hold of your heart. Jesus is no fool, understatement of the millennium. He knows your hearts. He knows what you've gone through. Maybe you had a week like my... My week, it just seemed like things were dumped upside down, like 
twisted and turned and just things were out of whack and just out of, out of normal rhythms. And I can just feel when that happens because we tend to be creatures of habit. Just our hearts can be fearful. Our hearts can be anxious about, about all kinds of things. And the good news is that this is that followers of Jesus can know Jesus for who he is. He is the comforter of your heart. He's the good shepherd of your heart. He knows your fears and he knows your anxieties and he shepherds us and meets us in in those places. And that's what we're going to hear and see this morning. So I'm going to pause and pray, ask for the power of the Holy Spirit just to lead this time this morning so that the words that you hear from me, a mere man, are not just mere words of a man, but truly empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can see Jesus clearly this morning. Does anyone just have a need to see Jesus clearly this morning? The fog of life just might be thick right now. And if life is like a battle and it can be the fog of war, so to speak, can just limit our visibilities of Jesus. The temptation is to take ten looks to troubles and one look or no look to Christ. And the encouragement of the scriptures is take a look to troubles, but then take ten looks to Christ. So let's just pray for him to do that right now this morning. Lord, we ask you to do this, to use me, delivering a message from your word. We're going to anchor ourselves in the word of God because we need to see you, the God of the word, clearly. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do this. Would you give me a vision of Christ who is my need as this beggar then attempts by the power of the Holy Spirit to lead other beggars to see their need for Jesus. We're all beggars in need of the bread of life. So Lord Jesus, help us to come to you, to see you clearly. I don't think you invite us to act as though we have no troubles, fears, and anxieties, but you say take your troubles, fears, and anxieties and bring them straight to me. So give us clear looks to you, King Jesus. Use me as an instrument in your hands, empowered by the Holy Spirit this morning. It's in the name of King Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Amen, amen. So if you remember several weeks ago, one of the phrases I said that casts a long shadow over the book of uh, the, the Gospel of Luke was in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus issued his summons to anyone who would come after him. Do you remember what he said? For anyone who would come after me, they must deny self, pick up cross daily, and follow me. So think of that. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily. Follow me. These are the words of Jesus to anyone who would come and seek after him as Lord and Savior. Now, admittedly, we've heard these words, and we just will not move past these words. Luke specifically wants you to see how these words are meant to infiltrate every corner of our lives, emotional lives, communicative lives, mental lives, spiritual lives, whatever it is, these words are meant to invade every corner of our lives. So when you think about that, these words, deny self, die daily, follow me, they are challenging words, 
They're also comforting words. But these deny self, die daily, come follow me words, they're also words which just can stir up a lot of fear. They can stir up a lot of anxiety in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. On one hand, there's just absolutely no greater joy to be found than in the pursuit of knowing King Jesus as Lord and as Savior. But on the other hand, following Jesus in a world that is hostile to Jesus, pursuing Jesus in a world that wants nothing to do with Jesus, to deny self in pursuit of Jesus, to die to self in pursuit of Jesus in a way that the world sees you doing this, we have to know it will produce unavoidable troubles in this world. It just will. As we follow Jesus, fearful situations will present themselves that just throw us for an absolute loop. Just because we live in a world that is tainted and destroyed by sin, afflictions will increase. Tensions will arise. There will be fighting without and there will be fear within that can just bubble up and overwhelm us in any given moment. Some of us have experienced these very things this past week in our pursuit of Jesus. Perhaps as you follow Jesus more and more and your length of walking with Jesus goes from days into months into years, perhaps you are learning this truth that, you know, man, like when I started following Jesus, I thought pursuing Jesus was going to mean freedom from hardship, only to find out that as the years tick by, it's actually quite opposite. Because as I fall more in love with Jesus and pursue Jesus, I stand out in a world that wants nothing to do with Jesus. If you know what it's like to live with fears, to live with anxieties as a result of following Jesus or just simply living in a world that is opposed to Jesus and you're just a Jesus follower in a world system that is just opposed to Jesus, then I think Jesus this morning wants you to take heart. He's going to shepherd you this morning. He's going to shepherd me. Jesus is the good shepherd. And as such, he is the comforter of your fearful, anxious heart. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we began this section in Luke's gospel. And as we turn to the specific verses this morning, this is what we're going to see. is Jesus is once again turning to his disciples and he's going to shepherd them. We said that big chunk from the end of Luke 9 all the way up to the end of Luke 19 is a huge section that covers what does it exactly look like to deny self, die daily, and follow Jesus. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, a follower of Jesus, and Luke told him, I want you to be certain of what is being taught to you. I want you to be certain of what it looks like to pursue Jesus. And so Luke, with great kindness and care, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is just taking us by the hand and he's leading us along to consider what does it look like to pursue Jesus. And now he's coming to the point where he recognizes that pursuit of Jesus 
as it means for discipleship, what it looks like for seeing the Savior's kingdom grow, what does it look like when we face fears and anxieties about just living in a world and following Jesus in these ways? Several times Luke records how Jesus directly addresses his disciples in our specific section today, end of chapter 10 to the end of chapter 13. And now is the time where he says, I'm going to help you process fears and anxieties. If you remember at the beginning of this section, Luke told us, don't forget, Jesus' face is set to Jerusalem. And then he introduced us to the sister duo that we saw on Sunday, Martha and Mary. And in that interaction, Luke tells us that it was Martha who was distracted with much serving. And because she was distracted with much serving, she was upset with her sister for not helping And it's Martha who then turns to Jesus and asks Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Do you remember what Jesus said to her in that moment? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled. (laughs) And I'm going to shepherd you now inside this moment here. Each one of us could get up this morning, come up and grab this mic and say, man, Jesus said to me, Jonathan, Jonathan, you are anxious and troubled about fill in the blank. Dan, you're anxious and troubled about fill in the blank. Nate, you're anxious and troubled. Amy, you're anxious and troubled. Mike, you're anxious. Every one of us could come up and fill in the blank. So what is Jesus going to say to us? What do we learn here now in Luke 12 as Jesus addressed Martha and Mary, he pressed a little pause to show us just how hypocrisy can lead people astray. He now is going to turn back to his disciples and he's going to really lean in heavy on the things that can make our hearts fearful and anxious and troubled. Notice that for Martha, her troubled and anxious heart led her to wrongly conclude that Jesus had no care for her and no care for her troubles. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Anyone here ever found themselves in troubles, fears, and anxieties? And it's just, it's millimeters that it just takes us to go like, Lord, what's your deal? Like, why do you not care for me right now? It is so easy to jump to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't care for us in the midst of troubles. But nothing could have been further from the truth, which is why Jesus said what he said to Martha, and which is why Jesus now, I think, wants us to see that, no, while it might seem that Jesus is a million miles away, back turned to our troubles, fingers in the ears, and is going around saying, la, 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 just like he doesn't want anything to do with that, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus, gentle and lowly, knows his sheep, cares for them deeply. And if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, then you know that anxieties and fears which grip our hearts, they come in all shapes and sizes. Amen? They can come in the form of close relationships that give us fear and anxiety, like two sisters named Martha and Mary. Anyone here have sibling anxieties and fears before? They can come in the form of material things. Will we have enough food? Will we have enough clothing? What about the health of me, my wife, my kids, that family member that I love? 
the unknowns of the future. All these things is what Jesus is going to address next week in part two. But notice that fears, anxieties, and troubles, they also come in the form of just hostile relationships. And it's this thought of hostile relationships and the fears and anxieties that can come when we stick out like a sore thumb in a world that is just opposed to Jesus. Jesus knows that troubles can and will come. And so at the end of Luke chapter 11, Luke told us this is the air that Jesus is breathing right now because he tells us that the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they began to press Jesus hard. They began to provoke Jesus to speak about many things because they were lying and wait for him. Their design was to catch Jesus in something he might say. So Jesus is in a hostile environment at the end of chapter 11. He rolls right into chapter 12. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to warn his disciples of a subtle sin to fear. There's going to be fear language all throughout these 12 verses And the first point we're going to see is that Jesus is going to say, in the midst of hostility, there's a subtle sin to fear. Look, starting in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In these 12 verses, the theme of fear rides high as Jesus tells us what not to fear and then tells us what to fear. And as denying, dying followers of Jesus, a healthy fear to have is how sneaky, subtle the sin of hypocrisy can be. Hypocrisy just sneaks in. It's overly subtle lurks around in the dark it just sort of comes and it can lay hold of a heart and we begin to act live think in maybe hypocritical ways that we're just not even aware of jesus warns his disciples to beware the leaven of the pharisees which is their hypocrisy he says oftentimes we assume that a person's hypocrisy is just going to be blatantly obvious for everyone to see look at that hypocrite we might say and there's times when it is it's just like it's just worn on the sleeve They say one thing, they do another, no one has to second guess, you can just look and see it right there on the surface. But a person's hypocrisy oftentimes, many times, can be sneaky, it can be subtle, it can operate silently below the surface. Jesus knows this, so this is why he uses the illustration of leaven or yeast, talking about how this truth of the way leaven and yeast works is sort of how hypocrisy works he says if anyone's ever made bread before then you know this leaven this yeast agent it's the rising agent that's put in bread dough to make it begin to rise and grow and multiply and the thing about leaven is this by nature leaven is slow by nature leaven is secret it's silent Now, the baker can stand back and see the effects of it as the dough begins to slowly rise and double in size and and multiply. But the process is quiet. The process is incremental. The process is really not easily detected. You can just sit there and stare at the dough and you'll notice like there just seems to be nothing going on, even though there is something actively lurking at work beneath the surface. It's not until you go away, maybe come back and then 
then you begin to notice, wow, there was really something at, at play there. And so Jesus says, if you grasp how leaven works, then you have a complete grasp on how, how hypocrisy works. The Pharisees' hypocrisy is like leaven. They look like one thing on the outside. Beneath the surface, sin is growing and corrupting their hearts. They are religious on the outside. They're very spiritual on the outside. They are doctrinally accurate. They know the scriptures. They win the award. They get the star next to their name for Bible memory. They can get up and preach sermons. They go to church. They know all the right God speak. But as Jesus exposed in our last sermon out of Luke, remember what Jesus said, woe to you, woe to you, six times over, woe to you. Why? Because the subtle sin of hypocrisy had consumed them. So what does this mean for you and what does this mean for me? The warning for followers of Jesus is to be on guard against the same subtle sin consuming us. My hunch is that when we find areas in our lives in which hypocrisy exists, the idea of hypocrisy is sort of being two-faced. You've probably heard the illustration before. The word was actually literally used of people who performed plays. So John Davis, the actor, would get up and put on a mask back in the day, and he'd get up and begin to act like someone else. And then when he was done play-acting, he would take the mask off and go back. hoop o is the word for a play actor in a theater because they're two-faced, literally two-faced in that moment. And that's, that's what we can find in our hearts every now and then. And maybe it just sort of sneaks up. My guess is you didn't have on your calendar the day planner that day, Tuesday, April, the whatever, wake up and be a hypocrite today. It just sort of snuck in and it just sort of lurked in the corners and we began to operate lack of integrity, embracing hypocrisy. You see, in order to operate, hypocrisy requires hiddenness. It requires secrecy. It requires darkness. But in calling out the subtle sin of hypocrisy, Jesus says, have this healthy fear. Many, I mean, I can just name people that I've bumped into in life who have looked out at the church corporately and have just said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't want anything to do with the Bible. Why? Because the church is filled full of hypocrites. And so what Jesus is saying, be on guard against this. There's probably measures of that being true. The church does have hypocrites in it, but thanks be to God that even hypocrites can find mercy and find grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus right now is inviting you and me, his self-denying, cross-bearing followers, into transparency, into openness. After all, Jesus says, if not now, then on judgment day, God is going to make hypocrisy known. Right? If there's those dark corners of our hearts where we're just trying to operate, where we say one thing out openly, but we believe and act in other ways in the hiddenness and the darkness, Jesus says, you just need to know, verses 2 and 3, that here's a truth, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
Therefore, verse 3, whatever you have said in the dark, it's going to be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms, it will be proclaimed on the house, housetop. What is Jesus' point here? Jesus' point is this. What we attempt to do in secret will ultimately be laid bare by God one of these days. For some of us, in kindness, it happens this side of heaven. Where Jesus loves us enough to pull back the curtains on our hypocrisy and shows us we are walking in hiddenness. But let me show you how to walk in the light. For some of us, when we stand before God on that final day, Hebrews 9 tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. We stand before God and it's just going to all be revealed. Naked. Exposed. And so this is a sober invitation, I think, on the part of Jesus for his followers to beware of this sin and put it to death when God reveals these areas of, of hypocrisy in our lives wherever they might reveal themselves. Notice that Jesus then moves on. So remember, Jesus is in the midst. What's the context here? Jesus is in the midst of hostility. Hypocrites are coming to him. People who look pristine and clean on the outside, whose hearts are full of death and malevolency towards the very things they say they love, are looking to Jesus and in their hypocrisy are leveraging hostility against him. And so Jesus is saying, be on guard against that subtle sin from creeping into your life like leaven into a lump of dough. But he also says this, what you also need to see is a spine-stiffening fear to embrace. So there's a subtle sin to fear, and then there's a spine-stiffening fear to embrace. This is just verses 4 through 7. Look in your Bible, starting there in verse 4. Notice what God's Word says. I tell you, my friends, do not fear. Notice how he keeps saying the word fear. Fear four times in these verses here. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who killed the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear, fear, fear. Do not fear, fear this. So what is Jesus saying here? It comes down to this. Here's just an honest truth for us today to grasp and wrap our minds around. A hypocrite can be hostile. Yeah? Yeah? And a hypocrite can be hostile, especially when their hypocrisy is exposed. So if a hypocrite has up a front and they're operating in a way that they want to be perceived, but back behind that veil they're operating in a way and someone comes along, tears down the veil of their hypocrisy and exposes them for the hypocrite they are, surely you've seen it, I've seen it before, that hypocrite can become overly hostile at their hypocrisy being exposed. And I think that's what we see here before us as Jesus just got done exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees at the end of chapter 11. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Do not fear hypocritical hostility when it comes. One of the most extreme forms of hostility a person can bring against another is to kill them. To be so hostile they actually come and say, I'm going to take your life because of my hostility. But Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body. Ultimately, enemies of the gospel are limited. They're limited in what they can do. 
Yes, it's true, they can kill the body as many past and present followers of Jesus know firsthand. But notice what Jesus says. After they kill the body, there is nothing more that they can do. There's nothing more they can do. What's the worst they could do to you, Jesus is saying. The worst they could do to you is take, take your body. And then what we get to do is go into the book of Philippians chapter 1 and say, well, phenomenal, to die is gain because I get Christ. And if I live, that's phenomenal because I get to grow and run after and telling more people about Christ. And if the people I go about telling Christ when I take my body, great. What I get is gain of going to Christ. So do you see why Paul was so um, une- he was he was unmovable? Because he's like, if I'm going to live, I get the phenomenal privilege of telling people about Jesus. If I die, I get Jesus. And so, like, no matter what you do to me, it's always gain for me. That's the spine-stiffening fear that Jesus is talking about here. There's nothing more they can do to you. Man is restricted in this sense. But notice in verse 5, notice that's not true with God. Him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast in hell. Man is limited. God is not limited. The him here, when Jesus says, him who has after, him who after he has killed the authority to cast in the hell, the him here is God. And without blinking an eye, Jesus just plainly says to his disciples, to those following him, that God can not only inflict death, but beyond death, God has authority to cast into hell. So he's giving us, you might want to be tempted to fear man, but I'm telling you not to fear man. What I'm telling you to do is to fear him who is in control of physical life and eternal life. That's the one I want you to come and fear. Thus, the spine-stiffening fear to embrace is the proper, good, and right fear of God. That's the, that's the spine-stiffening fear to embrace. In a nutshell, to fear God is to live before Him with a reverence. It's to live before Him with an awe that matches the greatness of our God. It's to recognize that glory belongs to my God and Savior. Majesty belongs to my God and Savior. Dominion and authority, these belong to my God and Savior and no one else. And according to Jesus, to fear God is to live wrapped up, enveloped with the confident assurance that my physical life and my eternal life are held in the hands of my God. They're held in no one else's hands. This is why the fear of God stiffens the spine, straightens you up, emboldens you to go and live in a world that is hostile to the things of the gospel and to the things of Christ to the things of God, to the things of Scripture. The fear of God can and does powerfully shatter the fear of man because if man in hostility kills the body, then guess what? He's only doing so because God has decided it's my time to go. If I go out and go knock, knock, knock on the door, I'm here to care for you in prayer, and that person responds to you with a measure of hostility, that is the worst that they can do, and God knew it was going to happen, and so it's okay. I don't have to fear that response. I can fear God. Man isn't robbing us of anything in that given moment, but man is actually serving God's plan for my life in that moment. Thus, in this way, the fear of God is that greater fear which cancels the lesser fear of man. 
So Jesus is saying, don't fear what you're prone to fear, the fear of man. That thing pales in comparison to the God who is worthy to be worshipped. The God who has your physical life and eternal life held in his hands. And when he says, it's time to go, it's my time to go. So I can boldly face hostility. I can boldly face opposition. I can boldly open my mouth. I can potentially lose my job. I can potentially ruin a relationship. I can potentially, potentially, maybe, maybe, I don't know, I don't know, because in this moment, I'm submitting myself to the one who has my life in the hands. And if something happens to me that I wouldn't necessarily have planned for my own life, but it happens to me. One, it has not caught him off guard. Two, he is the good shepherd, the good God who has me held in his hands. And so if it is what is bad as I think it might be, then it doesn't have to freak me out or catch me off guard because God is there. He's caring for me. So the fear of God cancels out that lesser fear. Here's a good illustration of this. It can be found in the life of a, a Russian preacher by the name of Cornelius Martins. He was a, a pastor preacher in the early, um, well, in the 1920s for sure, uh, in Russia. And communism was beginning to take its hold and was in full hold. And in 1920s in the Soviet Union, Cornelius Martins, he was hauled into the office of the local Communist Party boss because of his witness for Christ. He was a preacher and he was going around boldly telling others about Christ in the midst of a system that does not want anyone to bow to anything else other than the Communist Party. And when he gets hauled in before the Communist Party boss, these two lackeys that were with the Communist Party boss ordered them to strip Martins of his clothes and stand there before them. To this... Martin says, quote, don't trouble yourselves. I will undress myself. I do not fear to die, for I shall be going home to the Lord if I do. If God has decided my hour has not come, then you cannot do me any harm here, end quote. As expected, this made the Communist Party boss very unpleasant threw the official into a rage. The account goes that the party boss pulls out revolver, levels it at Martin's, and tried to shoot him three different times. But each time his finger just like, it was like froze on the trigger, unable to pull the trigger, unable to actually commit the act that he, of animosity and hostility that he was harboring toward Martin's in that moment. And the account goes that as the party boss's body quivered as if he were close to a coronary, ultimately he looks Martins in the eye, tells him to disappear and to never return. The question I have for you and the question for me as I was just studying this past week is what on earth would lead someone to stand so firm in the face of something so fearful? You don't have to undress me. I'll undress myself. I'll stand naked and unashamed before you because if you're going to take my life, then God had it planned. But if God doesn't have it planned, there ain't nothing you can do to unnerve this God-fearer. What on earth would lead someone to stand so firm before something so fearful? The answer, I think, is this. Martin's was gripped by the spine-stiffening fear of God. That's what it was. Convicted of God's care for him, 
Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? That's God's care for him and us. Convinced that God knows him. Listen, Martins. Listen, Davis. Even the number of hairs on your head, God knows them. He knows you. And if he knows the number of hairs on your head, then he knows the scenario that you're in. In these realities, anchored feet firmly planted on this foundation, Martins could truly fear not. My hunch is this coming week that you're probably not going to be hauled before the Communist Party boss. Probably not going to have a revolver pulled on you and aimed at you with the intention of it taking your life. But there might come a time when your co-worker says, hey, are you one of those Jesus people who believe fill-in-the-blank? You're not one of those Bible people, are you? You're telling me that dead guy, Jesus, were you actually doing that and not the Easter Bunny stuff this past week? Hey, Bill, check this out. Davis believes this. Boss hears about it. Secret plans go into effect. Glass ceiling gets put over you. You're never going to rise up the ranks. What's your hope in that moment of being able to stand up with a spine-stiffening fear of God in that moment? It's recognizing that God knows me in this moment. God cares for me in this moment. And whatever is happening to me is not catching him off guard. And if that is what is going to happen to me in any given moment, then I can just trust God in this moment. I can truly cast myself on him in this moment. Notice this couples really, really easily to the last point, an anxiety-producing fear to be faced. So there's a spine-stiffening fear to be embraced, but there's this anxiety-producing fear that we need to face, and that's what verses 8 through 12 are all about. Look, starting in your copy of Scripture in verse 8, notice what Jesus continues to teach the disciples and teach you and me. He says, I tell you this, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will acknowledge before the angels of God. But also know this, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Once again, Jesus is shepherding us here right now. The temptation for any disciple is to remain silent before hostile opposition to Jesus, hostile opposition to his gospel. Anyone ever been there before? <laughs> Like the door of opportunity lands in your lap, and I can count them off. If you're like, tell me some stories, I'll tell you some stories in my life where it's like you're just sitting there minding your own business, and all of a sudden someone's like, just plop something on your lap, and you're like, oh no, like it's, it's go time. I'm on. Eyes and ears and hearts and minds are about, or like they're glued to my lips. What is he going to say about X right now? And the temptation in that moment is to remain silent. Yeah? Anyone ever felt that before? I'm not going to open my mouth right now because I know if I open my mouth, this is what's going to come. Social pressure can cause us to clam up. Fear of job loss, promotion, denial, relational damage, and more. All these things can turn our mouth into like a cotton ball in an instant. Anxieties blossom as we just crunch that quick mental math and we calculate the cost. If I speak up for Jesus now, I know that this will happen. And so we find ourselves in that weird place. What are we going to do? 
in our day, just in Jesus' day, fearful anxiety about following Christ, it's a real issue. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. That's why he says there in verse 11, notice what he says in verse 11, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Yes, I know there can be anxiety producing fear before men. You see that in verses 8 and 9, right? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the one who denies me before men. Jesus realizes that when we are standing before men, the fear of man can lead us to clam up and to withhold speaking for Christ. I know that there can be anxiety producing fear before men. Jesus also says down in verse 11, yes, I also know this that there can be anxiety-producing fear when in hostile territory. Notice what verse 11 says there. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. When you find yourself in places where like just the ground, the territory, the ethos, the vibe is we are hostile to the things of Jesus, this can be an anxiety-producing fear. And notice then in verse 10, Jesus even knows that there will be times when we lose our nerve and speak a word against the Son of Man. Do you see that there in verse 10? Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man. Now we can speak a word against the Son of Man like Peter did. You remember what Peter did? Didn't you follow Jesus? It wasn't me. Weren't you a follower of Jesus? It wasn't me. No, I'm pretty sure you were one of the followers of Jesus, and it says he called down like curses. I am not that follower of Jesus. Some of us have been there before. Peter's story isn't theory. It's, it's the real deal. Denied Jesus in that way. Some of us can and have spoken a word against Jesus by just failing to stand up for him, by saying nothing you were saying something in that moment. Buddies were ragging on Jesus, bringing him down, punking him out, just saying insane things that you just know weren't true. And instead of just saying, guys, that's not true, or I think you guys have a misunderstanding here in this moment, our silence spoke louder than if we actually spoke. And we spoke against Jesus in that way by not speaking up. Notice the compassion that Jesus has towards us. Look at verse 10 again. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Is this good news? It's good news. Notice that Jesus says, but, in verse 10, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, this is one who will not be forgiven will not be forgiven. Now, we preached on this when we worked through the Gospel of Mark, and there's a lot that can be said, and now we just don't have our time is out this morning, and we, we need to wrap up. But what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying this. Think about the context. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the rulers, the ones who were supposed to and be and were seen in the eyes of others, like these are the ones who have it right. What are they consistently doing? This is what Mark teaches us. They're looking at Jesus and saying, this man's demonic. They had come to the point in their life where they looked at the active work of God in the midst of people's lives and they were said, that's from the pit of hell. 
It was the work of the Spirit active in and through Christ in the lives of others. And they were saying, that is satanic. At some point in time, if we're not careful, denying Christ, denying Christ, denying Christ, denying Christ, denying Christ, crosses that line where our hearts just become hardened to where we're actually willing to look at heaven's incarnate son and say, that's satanic. The work of the Spirit is the work of Satan. Jesus says that is what it is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us are here anxious about this very thing. Am I the one, am I the one who did this? Listen, if you're worried about it, you're not the one who's, who's guilty of this. You might even be here struggling. You might even be here doubting. You might even be wrestling just with things in your mind, like, I don't know, Jesus, do I follow him or not? Is he good? Is he bad? These kinds of things. And there might just be times when you're, you're trying to maybe just reason things out, and a buddy comes along and is like, man, are you getting religious on us? You're like, no, man, that's not me. You're, you're, you're being very Peter-esque in that moment. You're still trying to wrestle with the things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the one who knows, who's heard the gospel clearly, has heard it repeatedly, has heard it over and over and over and over, has no questions, no doubts about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, has no doubts as to what the gospel is and what it is about and what it requires of sinful man, has no doubts about the things of God, comes to the place and says, I do not want this and I so do not want this. I'm actually going to turn and become an enemy of these very things to the point where I'm going to call the things of Christ satanic. I don't know when that happens. I don't know how that happens, but according to Jesus, it can and does happen. And Jesus says, when that soul crosses that line, whenever that line is, that is the one who is blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and will not be forgiven. So my guess is if you're worried about, have I done this the people who have done this are not worried about committing this sin. I'm just telling you. They're happy to glory and boast in this denial. But if they're just still that longing and that wrestling and you're like, man, I'm just still trying to work this stuff out, then you are in a good and right place. Jesus says, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. So how do we combat fear when faced with hostility? What's our hope when our moment comes and we're anxious about how we should defend ourselves or what we should say there? Verses 11 and 12. Here's the answer. Our firm hope is that the Holy Spirit will teach us what to say in that moment. The Holy Spirit, that's the antidote to anxious hearts. Jesus is going to say more about it. He's going to give us more antidotes. But right now, in the fear of hostility, when the fear of man is increasing, what is our hope to squash the fear of man and see the fear of God, the greater fear, trump that lesser fear? The Holy Spirit is our hope. You might be asking, okay, well, that's all good and well, but what does this even look like? How does this work itself out? I mean, is this even possible? Is this just theoretical? What I want you to do, and this is how we're going to wrap up, I just want you to read the words on the screen along with me. This is how Peter, praise God for Peter, right? Peter, the insert foot. Peter denied Christ. Peter restored Peter, began to speak boldly for Jesus, Peter. 
Notice this little interaction in Acts chapter 4 if you want to catch a glimpse of it. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, so notice who this is, all the people that Jesus has been talking about. When you get hauled in before all these people and they're pressing you, hey, what are you going to say about Jesus right now? Verse 2, they were greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people. Acts chapter 3, they just healed a lame beggar in the name of Jesus. Everything's tilting upside down. People are moving toward Jesus. The people that don't want people moving toward Jesus are becoming very agitated. They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, so they arrested them, Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day, these rulers, these elders, these scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So this is the people that they're standing in front of right now. What are you going to say in this moment? In this situation, these are the people who can ruin your life. Religious life for the Jew was everything. They can say, you don't get to go to church anymore. You don't get to have occupation in our community anymore. You're going to lose your livelihood. This is the kind of fear that could have and most likely was gripping the heart of Peter and John in this moment. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, questioned, by what power or by what name did you do this and these things? Then Peter, notice, filled with the Holy Spirit opens mouth and says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And just in case you are wondering, there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just in case you're asking. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter as a result of the Holy Spirit and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why? Because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I want that. Most of us can go thank God for Luke writing the sentence that they were uneducated common men because everyone in this congregation said, Amen. Here's a whole bunch of uneducated common men. What is your hope when the guy at work, the gal at work says, the Jesus stuff, resurrection stuff, is that you? Do you really believe this? And you go, What are you going to do? Holy Spirit, please. And then people step back and go, "Uh, this guy knows Jesus. I might think he's the biggest idiot in the world, but this guy knows Jesus. He's not saying the thing. Has anyone ever been in that scenario before? You're you're on. What am I going to do? What am I going to say right now? And then you find yourself like later that night, your head on the pillow, you're like, how in the world did I stitch those sentences together? It wasn't because you're phenomenally bright, believe me. It wasn't because I had some kind of degree behind my name, believe me. It's because the Holy Spirit of God says, I will bring honor and glory to King Jesus. And he moved in us, filled us open mouth, and the witness of Christ went forward. Now, you might still lose your job. 
Like, don't think this means that, wow, if I speak up in power by the Holy Spirit, they won't take my life. You might still die at the hands of a gospel enemy. But the name and the fame of King Jesus is going to march forward, and it's like, sign me up on that list. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, work in us. Comfort our fearful hearts. Comfort our anxious hearts. Jesus, would you fill this Jesus family to be a Jesus family that sees acts chapter 4, on repeat in our lives. Would you trump the lesser fear of man with the greater fear of God to the name and to the glory of King Jesus? It is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.